0: Thanks for tuning in and making Res Life a part of your day. Whether this is your first time listening or this is a part of your weekly rhythm, we are glad you're here. If you'd like to connect more throughout the week, check us out at reslife.org, download our app, or follow us on social media. It's time for today's message, so let's dive in. I want to continue today a message that we began last week on victory over depression. Taking a look at the life of Elijah. Now, Elijah is literally considered to be the greatest of the prophets of the Old Testament. And the Bible says this about him in James chapter five. It says that he was a human being with a nature such as we have, with feelings, affections, and a constitution like ours. A lot of times we think about the people in the Bible and we think, well, they're perfect. You know, they never had any fear, any anxiety, they never really had any battles with depression. Uh, there was no temptation. There was no trials. But that is not at all true. And notice that the Bible says he was a person just like you, with feelings, affections, and a constitution like ours. Sometimes we think people that God used, that they somehow have a, a different life. The truth is this that they have to resist sin exactly the same way you do, and that they experience all the same feelings that you and I have. And it says that he, he prayed earnestly for it not to rain, and no rain fell on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the heavens supplied rain, and the land produced crops as usual. Now, he really just seems to... Out of nowhere, when you find him in the Bible, he shows up in First Kings chapter seventeen. First thing he does is shows up with the king and says, "King, you've been so wicked. There is going to be no rain and no dew these years until I say so." Of course, the king thought this is a lunatic. Nobody stops him. But as the days and the weeks and the months go by, and there's no rain and dew, uh, the king realizes this is the real deal. He, he's out searching for this prophet, but God told the prophet, go and hide by the brook cherub. And I've commanded ravens to come every morning and every night and bring you bread and meat. So there's supernatural provision. But when the brook dries up, God says, arise and go to Zarephath. I've commanded a widow woman there to provide for you. Uh, you, you would probably think that it's going to be a rich widow. But it's not. He gets there and the widow is there. She's out gathering a couple of sticks. And so he says to her, hey, please bring me a drink of water. And as she's going, he says, and uh, bring me a little cake to eat too. And she says, as the Lord your God lives, she said, I only have a handful of flour and a little bit of oil left in the bottom of a jar. And I'm going to go make a cake for my son and a little cake for me. And we're going to eat them and we're going to die. And the prophet said, yeah, go ahead and make a little cake for yourself and a little cake for your son. But make me one first. And as I said, if 60 minutes had been there, what a what a program. They would have torn the prophet apart. Prophet takes widow's last meal. Can't you read it? But this is what the prophet knew. He knew that she was afraid to give. So he said, don't fear. And he said, when you release something from your head, God's going to release something to you. And he said, this is what the Lord says. You do this and that cruise of oil will keep on pouring. And every time you put your hand in that bin of flour, there will be more. And the Bible says that she did and he did. And they ate many days. She, her household and the prophet. But then eventually God says, go And show yourself to the wicked king, Ahab, and have a contest. Tell him, bring all your prophets to Mount Carmel. Put up a sacrifice on an altar, but don't put fire. And I'll do the same. And the God that answers by fire, he's God. So they have the contest. There's 450 prophets of Baal. There's 400 prophets of the Asherah. And they're screaming out, they're crying, they're dancing, the Bible says, around the altar, crying out to their God. They're cutting themselves, trying to get his attention, but nothing happens. Finally, it's Elijah's turn. He simply prays a simple prayer and fire falls from heaven and consumes the sacrifice. All the people fall down. They say, the Lord's God, the Lord's God. He grabs all the false prophets. He kills them. He goes up on the top of the mountain, prays again. And suddenly there's wind, there's dark clouds, there's thunder, there's lightning. And he gets word to the king and says, hurry up and get down to your town of Jezreel. Because if you're not in a hurry, the rain's going to stop you. And the Bible says the spirit of the Lord came on the prophet and he outran the king's chariot. Now he might have to have the fastest horses in the best chariot. But for 18 miles, he outran them. And then the Bible says that Ahab, that's the wicked king, tells Jezebel, that's the wicked queen, all that Elijah had done. Also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also. If I don't make your life like the one of them by this time about tomorrow, about this time tomorrow. And when he saw that, I had that underlined in my Bible when he saw that he arose and ran for his life, went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die and said, it's enough. Now, Lord, take my life. I am no better than my father's. Now, notice what it says. It says when he saw that. She said, you're going to be dead by this time tomorrow. And that is exactly what he began to see on the inside. He began to, to imagine how they were going to kill him, how they were going to celebrate, what was going to happen. He began to see it on the inside. And the truth is that we always move in the direction of our dominant thoughts. The Bible says this in Isaiah 26, verse 3. It says, you, that's God, will keep him, that's you, in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you. Now, now the word mind there is the, the Hebrew word yester, and it means imagination and conception. Right? So he's saying, if you keep your imagination, if you keep your meditation, you keep focused on God, on God's word, on God's promises, on God's mercy, on God's goodness, on God's faithfulness. You keep focused on God and he will keep you in perfect peace. And notice imagination, conception. In other words, what we think about in our minds is where we conceive it. Right? That's where the hope comes. You begin to, you, you, you start with a promise of God. And you, you read that you begin to think about it and you begin to imagine that thing happening. You begin to hope it's going to happen in your life. But the Bible says, Hebrews 11, one. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. If there's never any hope, if you never begin to see it on the inside, if it doesn't come to a place of expectation, it's not going to manifest in your life. So he'll keep you and I in perfect peace when our mind, our imagination, our meditation, our thoughts are stayed on him, right? Then the Bible tells us after he prayed that prayer, he ends up and he goes to the Mount of God and verse nine says, and there he went into a cave and he spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left. And they seek to take my life. So let's take a look at where he's at. Verse three says he was very afraid. He's full of fear. Verse four, he says, I've had enough. It's enough. Literally, he has lost hope. Then he says, Lord, take my life. He's so so depressed, he's suicidal. He said, I'm no better than my father's. Low self-esteem. He said, I've been very zealous for the Lord of God. I have worked hard for nothing. I have given my life, but there's no results. Then he says, I alone and left. He's, He's lonely. And he is, in his mind, he's alone. And he said, they're trying to kill me. There's worry. There's anxiety. Let me just tell you something. That is a, any two of those are a recipe for depression. Any two are a recipe for direction. So the Lord said to him, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord will pass by. And a great and a strong wind tore the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in the mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Suddenly the voice came to him saying, What? are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? And by the way, so often what we think is that God's going to show up in some wild way, right? We're like, God, if this is your will, let three camels walk through the sanctuary. We want something spectacular. We want to see an angel. We want something like that. But God shows up in that still, small voice. Romans 8, 16 says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. It's God speaking to you in your heart. That's where God speaks to us most of the time. Uh, A couple of things that are really key in breaking depression off from our life. I want to to talk to you about at least three. And the first one is this. Have an eternal perspective. Right? Look at it if, if, if however long you're going to live, right? In in light of eternity, it is just a little bleep on the screen. The apostle wrote this in 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Literally, we don't get discouraged. Even though the outward man is perishing, that the inward man is renewed day by day. But that's saying your physical body is getting old, right? Uh, in my, in my 30s, I used to do a lot of triathlons. I'm 70. I don't do anymore. All right? I, I watch my grandkids do stuff, and i just say, I can't do that. All right? You say, well, well, the outward man is getting older. All right? But the inward man is renewed day by day. All right? You see, on the inside, I still think I'm 16. All right? But my body keeps telling me different. All right? For our light affliction. Now, get that. This one, that's worth underlining. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working in us a far more exceeding weight of glory. Well, we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Now notice he talks about problems and he calls them our light affliction. I want to read you a little bit. This is his light affliction in labors, more abundant in stripes beyond measure, in prison more frequently in deaths. Often from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one, three times I was beaten with rods. And uh, by the way, the rod thing was they took your shoes off and they beat the bottom of your foot with rods until they broke bones. Uh, Three times beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Left for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day of men in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of water, perils of robbers, perils of countrymen, perils of Gentiles, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils among false brotherness. In weariness and toil and sleepiness often, in hunger and thirst, fastings often, cold nakedness. Besides the other things that come upon me daily, my deep concern for the churches are light affliction. I don't know what you're going through, but you just need to start calling it light affliction. Just kind of smile, right? Because it's nothing in compare to eternity. It's nothing, right? Uh, he goes on, and his what he says to the Lord. He says, "I've been very zealous for the Lord of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone." am left, and they seek to take my life. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Now, God's going to answer him, and he's going to say, look, I have 7,000 people that have not bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000. Now, the prophet's problem is this. He doesn't know any of them. Right? There's 7,000, but he doesn't know who these 7,000 are. He is living the life of a lone ranger. And let me just say this as a Christian, you and I are not called to live as lone rangers, right? When we become part, when, when we receive Jesus, he puts us in the body of Christ, right? When Jesus sent out his disciples, he sent them out two by two. Over 30 times in the new Testament, the Bible tells us to one another. How many of you know, you can't one another by yourself, Can't be done. But he says: be devoted to one another, give preference to one another, be of the same mind towards one another, accepting one another, right? Uh, Esteeming one another, building up one another, counseling one another, serving one another, bearing one another's burdens, being gentle to one another, being kind to one another in unity speaking the truth to one another, submitting to one another, forgiving one another, encouraging one another, living at peace with one another, seeking the good of one another, stimulating one another to spiritual growth, confessing our sins to one another, serving one another. How many you get there's another besides you? You can't one another alone, right? In fact, God does not have any lone rangers. But a lot of people today... They really think that Christianity is is really a private issue. It's not. It is not. We're supposed to be a part of a body. Again, Jesus sent out the disciples two by two. When I I think about this, I often think about King David. The the, the, The best known story about King David, he went out and he killed the giant Goliath in tremendous victory. How many of you know about that story? All right. Most of you. How many of you know the story of the giant that David couldn't kill? Two, three, four. Let me read you a story. When the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David and his servant with him went down and fought against the Philistines. And David grew faint. Then ish who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose spear was 300 shekels, who was bearing a new sword, thought that he could kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. So David had a day when he could kill the giants. But there was another day where the giant would have killed David if he hadn't had a friend. If he hadn't had somebody with him, and, and I know this is true. There are days when you can kill all the giants that show up, but there's other days when if you're alone and you don't have help, you get killed. You get taken out by the giant. We were not meant to live the Christian life alone. And literally here's a prophet. God says, I have 7,000 people just like you. He doesn't know a one of them. Right? And so when God straightens him out, one of the things that he does is he gives him a protege. He gives him somebody to be with him. Right? So he would not continue that, that life going alone. Right? <clears throat> In fact, God says, go and return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Haziel, king of Syria. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nishi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Sephath at Abel, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. So literally, when God's talking to him, the first thing that he does is he gives him an assignment. He says, now, look, I want you to go and anoint Hazio, king of Syria. I want you to anoint Jehu, king of Israel. And I want you to anoint Elisha to be prophet in your place. And what he did with that is, is he gave him somebody to be with him. Right? But he was just sitting around. He is he's he's literally having a pity party. And how many of you know that's the party that nobody wants nobody else wants to go to? When you have a pity party, nobody wants to be around. But he is having a pity party. He said, Man, nothing matters. No, nothing I've done has made any difference. Woe is me. Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. I'm gonna eat worms. Nobody cares. I'm alone nothing matters. And God straightens him out and says, look, number one, you're not going to be alone anymore. He said, I'm giving you Elisha and he's going to be with you literally all of your days. Then he gives him an assignment to go and start anointing some people to be king, right? Now, every one of us, you may not realize it, but you have an assignment from God. And I, I want to say this, God will, we will not get specific with you, right? If you're disobeying the last time he spoke to you, sometimes people say to me, I, I, I don't think God's speaking to me And my, my question almost always is this, what's the last time God spoke to you? Well, he told me to do this. Well, are you doing it? No. All right? So find out what's the last thing God told you. All right. But I want you to listen. Ephesians two, 10 for we are God's handiwork recreated in Christ Jesus born anew that we may do those good works, which God predestined. That simply means he planned before for us taking paths. He prepared ahead of time that we should walk in them living the good life. He prearranged and made ready for us to live. This verse says that every single Christian God has prepared things for you to do, good works for you to do. And and by the way, we tend to think there's other things that are going to fulfill us, right? But God said this, when you're doing what I've called you to do, you're going to be living the good life, right? There is nothing that will give you more satisfaction than being right in the middle of what God has called you to do. You see, you are the light of the world. Jesus said, you're a city set on a hill that cannot be hid. And we need to find out what is that thing God's called me to do? You say, I don't know. Well, find something and start doing something to help build the kingdom of God. And if you're not doing what God wants you to do, he'll get you where he wants you to go. Because being in the will of God is like riding a bicycle, right? You get the bicycle moving, you can steer it. But as long as that bicycle isn't moving you're not going anywhere, right? So find out what God's called you to do. And if you don't know, find something to do and start doing it. And God will move you where he wants you to be. Don't try to live the Christian life alone because we weren't made to live the Christian life alone. We were made to live in relationship, right? And then What I believe really is the number one key to having victory over depression. I want to take this verse from Isaiah chapter 61. It says to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Now by the way heaviness is an old English word that means depression. And notice that depression when it when in when it's when it's grown when it's in its fullness it's actually motivated by a spirit. It is a spirit of depression. Right? But he says the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness or depression. In other words, he says, you need to make an exchange. You need to get rid of that depression. Stop complaining, start praising, start thanking, start worshiping, right? And it, it, what you can't do is you cannot be thankful. You can't be praising and worshiping and stay depressed, right? The Bible says this in Hebrews 13. It says, Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Now, we are continually to offer the sacrifice of praise. What is that? It's the fruit of your lips. It's when you speak it out and you're thanking God. But notice, it's a sacrifice. There's days when everything's great and you're like, woo, hallelujah. But there's other days when you don't feel like it. And those are the days that it's a sacrifice of praise. Habakkuk said it this way. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no fruit, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stall, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. He said, doesn't matter what's going on. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. I am going to be thankful. In Hebrew, excuse me, in Revelation 4, verse 11, it says, and for your pleasure, they were created. Right? You were created for God's pleasure. Did you know that? That's what you were created for. So look at Adam and Eve. They are in the Garden of Eden. Uh, they, there, there's no sin problems. There's, there's no money problems. There's no health problems. There's no in-law problems. There's no family problems. There's no depression problems. There's no racism problems. There are no problems, right? And do you know what they do? They are created and they're fulfilling the purpose for which they're created. They're fellowshipping with God. They're fellowshipping with God, and and you may not realize it, but you, you could be in the penitentiary in solitary confinement, and you can fulfill your purpose. You can praise God. You can fellowship with God. You can worship God. You were created for his pleasure. Now, David, in Psalms 116, where did it go? There it is. He is literally fighting depression right? And he tells us what he did, right? So here's how the verse starts. Verse seven says, return to your rest. O my soul. Now here's what he's saying. He says, my mind is going crazy. There's all these problems. And I just keep on imagining the worst possible case scenario. Is there anybody here that when problems show up, your mind shows you the worst thing that could happen? That's literally what David has happening, all right? And so he's going to tell us what he did, right? Now, as he's doing that, I want to remind you of Isaiah 26 in verse 3, which says, you will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind, imagination, meditation, conception is stayed on him, right? Now, what so often we think is, well, I've got, I've got these bad, I've, I've got, I'm depressed because of my, 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 my mind. I've had many people say I have a chemical imbalance. And you know what? You're probably right. Several years ago, I was listening to Dr. T.L. Osborne. And he, he, he said something that, that stuck with me. This is what he said. He said, now, scientists have tabulated over a thousand different secretions from the human brain over a thousand different secretions from the human brain. He said, now, what happens is this. He says, you start thinking about revenge. You start thinking hateful thoughts. He said, and as your brain begins to secrete, and it's like putting rust in your joints. He said, but you you begin to be thankful. You you begin to forgive. He said, and it's like your brain secretes, and it's putting WD-40 into your joints. Right? See, the, the question is not, is there a chemical imbalance? The question is, does the chemical imbalance produce the depression? Or does the depression and wrong thoughts produce the chemical imbalance? And I believe it's the second. Right? Again, over a thousand different secretions from the brain. Right? Depending upon what we think. And he will keep him in perfect peace. Whose mind, imagination whose meditation is stayed on him. So David said, return to your rest, O my soul. He says, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. And he looks and he said, God has been good to me. He said, you delivered my soul from death. Oh, King Saul literally for years sought to kill David. The Bible says every day. But God protected him. He said, you delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears. He had a number of heartbreaking family situations that literally broke his heart. But God, you know what God did? God healed his heart. He said, my feet from falling. One of the best known stories about David is he fell. He fell into sin with Bathsheba. But you know what? God forgave him. And he said, God, you put me in a large place and you set my foot on a solid rock. He looked at all that God had done and he began to be thankful to God for all that God had already done. Listen, this is Psalm 78 verse 41. Yes, again and again, they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. They didn't remember his power the day when he remem- redeemed them from the enemy. Do you know you and I limit God right? when we don't remember what God has done for us, when we are not thankful for what God has already done for us, when we don't begin to praise him and worship him for who he is? right? What do we do? We limit God. You thought, well, I thought God would just do whatever he wants to do. No, 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 no. You have a part to play. You have a part to play. The Bible says they limited God when they didn't remember his power. They didn't remember all the things God had done to deliver them and to provide for them and to protect them, right? Ezra chapter three in verse 10. Now, Ezra has come to Jerusalem and the temple has been in ruins, right? And this is what the Bible says. And the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. The priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Aphath with symbols, and they praised the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good and his mercy endures forever towards Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout, and they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. They praised the Lord because the foundation of the house was laid. They didn't praise the Lord because it was finished, painted, furnished, and dedicated. They praised the Lord because the foundation of the of the place was laid. The foundation of His house. Jesus talks about how the kingdom bears fruit. It's thirty. It's sixty. It's a hundred. Right. What they did is they began to praise when they just saw the littlest thing. They just saw God begin to move and they begin to praise. You pray for somebody. You say, are you better? Well, I'm maybe 20% better. Now, why didn't God give me the rest? No, thank God for 20% right? God begins to take you out of sickness, take you out of depression, begins to bring a new level of peace into your life. That doesn't mean he's done. That just means he's gotten started. But what you need to do is you need to praise him. Not when you're a hundred percent, but praise him immediately. When you begin to see God begin to move in your life. Now I'm going to ask everybody to stand up and we're going to begin to praise. We're going to begin to thank God, begin to thank him for what he's begun to do in our life. I want everybody to lift your hands. The Bible said that I would that men everywhere lift holy hands when they pray without doubt and without wrath. Well, Lord, we have no doubt that you are our savior. You're our redeemer. And we thank you, Father, for moving in our lives. We thank you for provision We thank you for healing. We thank you for peace. We thank you for victory. We thank you for deliverance. We thank you, God, that wayward sons and daughters, they're being convicted. They're being drawn back into the home, into relationship with you. We thank you, God. We've been delivered out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of your love that we're washed in the blood, that we're righteous, that we're justified. We thank you, God, for peace in our lives. We thank you for provision. We thank you for what you're doing. I want somebody to shout. I want somebody to raise their voice. I want somebody to say yes. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, thank you, God. Thank you for provision. Thank you for healing. Thank you for deliverance. We thank you, God, for what you've begun and that you will complete the work that you have begun in each heart, each life, each family, each body. We thank you for it in Jesus' mighty, mighty name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah to the Lamb. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Woo! Now, be seated for just a moment. I want to encourage you. That should be a part of your daily time with God, a time where you begin to thank God for what he has done. Even in Philippians 4, when it talks about prayer, it says, come with thanksgiving. Come with thanksgiving. Thanks for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. For more information, if you're in need of prayer or just want to connect with the community, go to reslife.org. Follow us on social media or email us anytime at reslife at reslife.org. We hope you have a blessed day and we will see you again soon.